Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to say that I consider it a, an incredible honor and a, an incredible responsibility uh, to have been asked to uh, have to speak with you today. And uh, it's, it's something I take very, very seriously, and I'm very grateful to Pastor John for uh, his confidence, misplaced though it may be. Uh, now, now for the really bad news, he said, Sam, take as long as you want. <laughs> okay, well, it, all you right now, your brains have just jumped to Revelation where it says, no liar shall enter the kingdom of heaven, right? All right. Well, today what we're going to do is talk about Shavuot, which is also goes by the name of the Feast of Weeks. And um, I want to start today with a, a question for you. Okay, and the question is, what happened on the first Christmas? Jesus is born, right? Now, question number two, what happened on the first Pentecost? Okay, and you might say, well, that's when the Holy Spirit was given. That's when the church was born. That's when the, the apostles were empowered. And you'd be, you would think that you were correct based on how we teach it in, in most churches. But in fact, Pentecost is really a hearkening back to the giving of the law on Sinai. Penta means five. And so God comes down on Sinai and gives the law 50 days after Passover. And so in your Bible, when you read that the day of Pentecost was fully come, it's saying they, they, they were celebrating Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And what we want to look at today is how do this, does the Feast of Shavuot relate to the events in Acts 2, which you're going to read about this week? And we're first going to sort of digress and talk about the Feast of Yehovah. Now, what I always like to point out whenever we get into this subject is these are not the feasts of the Jews. These are not the feasts of Israel. These are the feasts of our God. Okay, so when Christianity came along, these weren't put aside. They're there for our lessons. They're there for our understanding. Um, and so we want to learn the lessons we can from them. So just real briefly, when we look at the feasts, there are seven feasts throughout the year. Okay, our Jewish brothers and sisters know how to party. Okay, and the first one which we celebrate is Pesach, which is Passover, and that occurs in the month of Nisan. Nisan is the first month of the year. Now, the, the civil calendar starts with Tishri, but when God established Pesach, he said, this will be the first month of the year to you from now on. Okay, and so while we'll get to Rosh Hashanah, which occurs, you know, later in Tishri, um, it's, it's a human thing, it's not, and it's not a God thing. Now, Pesach is part of a larger feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrates Passover and the deliverance of the children from Israel. It goes for seven days, the first day commemorating the exodus from Egypt, and the seventh, the crossing of the Red Sea. Then there's this next step, which is buried within it, which is the Feast of First Fruits. Okay, now listen real carefully. First fruits occurs on the day after the first Sabbath after Pesach. So that's all very clear, right? But we're going to see why that's important in a minute. Then we get 50 days out from that, and we get to Shavuot. And this is in the month of Sylvan, because we've, we moved ahead two months. And the Jews know this as the Etzeret Pesach, the completion of Pesach. 
because as we're going to see, what their understanding was is what got started with delivering the Jews, he now completes by giving them the law. And what's fascinating about this is that Yeshua, Jesus, fulfills these exact days, okay? So John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming in John 1.29, what does he say? He says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's, he's calling to the remembrance of his Jewish disciples that this is that Lamb. There was a Lamb that was sacrificed to you, that delivered you from Egypt, there is a lamb that's going to be sacrificed that's going to deliver you from spiritual Egypt. Egypt is constantly used in the Bible as a, as a sign of sin. So we need deliverance from sin. Jesus is that lamb that's sacrificed for us to be able to do that. Then we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Jesus is crucified on Passover, which is when the Passover lamb would have been killed, and then he's buried on the Feast of First Fruits. And I'm sorry, he's buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, leaven in the Bible is often a sign of sin, but Jesus was sinless. That's why he could be that perfect sacrifice. That's why he could take away our sins. And Hebrews underscores this. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every, has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the virgin birth frees Jesus from the presence of original sin in his life, and then he lives throughout his life, a sinless life, so that he can be sacrificed on our behalf and take away our sins. Then we get to the Feast of first fruits. okay? And why is that important? Because that celebrates his resurrection. Jesus is resurrected on the Feast of first fruits, And this notion of Jesus being the firstborn from the dead is emphasized to us by the Apostle Paul. In Colossians 1.18, he says, Jesus is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, be, will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus isn't the first person physically risen from the dead but he's the first person who's physically risen from the dead that never dies again. Lazarus is going to die again. Okay, those Old Testament occurrences of resurrections, those ones in the miracles of Jesus where they were raised, those people all died again. Jesus didn't. And that's our hope, is that we're going to spend eternity with him. And again, in the book of Revelation, Apostle John in Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of this earth. Okay, all right. So now let's move ahead and we get now to Shavuot, which as I said, falls in the third month of the year, which is the month of Sovan, and this is Etzeret Petzak. This is described in Leviticus 23, where it says, you shall also count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath, which is the first Sabbath after Pesach. He says, from the day when you brought in the sheath of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths, and you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Is that all very clear? Okay, have you got your day planners out and you're marking this down? Okay. And the Jews refer to this as the counting of the Omer, because what they would do is they would, they would bring the, the, the harvest in. They'd bring the first of the harvest in, and sacrifice it to God. It was called a wave offering. I'm going to show you that in a minute. 
And the important thing about it was when the, when the Jews brought the grain offering in, they were bringing the first things to be harvested. They didn't wait and see how much they got and, okay, what can I, what can I give to God? They said, no, we're going to go out and the very first things, we're going to present those to God in thanksgiving and counting on him to now make sure that the locusts don't come and the hail doesn't come and we don't get our crops wiped out. We're trusting in him. So the counting of the omer, omer is a measure of wheat or a measure of grain, okay? The other thing that connects it back to the wilderness is, and here's, here's a quiz, and this is extra credit, how much manna did the Jewish people collect every morning? One omer, one omer apiece. So again, as they're counting the omer of the barley crop, they're reminded of God's goodness, that he fed our ancestors in the wilderness by giving them omers of manna. All right. So let's continue on in Leviticus 23. It says, you shall also count for yourselves from, I'm sorry, uh, the other thing I wanted to emphasize in it is he talks about um, that there would be a wave offering. And the wave offering is a very interesting thing because what you were doing is by giving it to God first, that the safety of the thing or the success of the activity which in you were engaged is represented as being put into God's hands, okay? So we, we sort of, in a way, we uplifted uh, you know, and Damien today, and we're saying we're, we're putting them in your hands. This, this task that they're taking on of education and new life, we're trusting God to do. And so it was a way of praying a blessing, okay? And the other concept that I like about it, it was a way of ratifying a covenant of establishing communion with God. So when we talk about wave offerings, that's going to be very important. And then continuing Leviticus, then he says, then you shall present a new grain offering to Yehovah. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah, which is two omers. Uh, they shall be a fine flour baked with leaven, uh-oh, as first fruits to Yehovah. And remember, we started off saying that that Passover complete, I'm sorry, that, that Shavuot completes what started at Passover. Well, in the same way, the bread represents the completed product of the grain that you, that you raised. Okay, so again, now they're saying, okay, God, you, we, we took what you gave us because only you can make things grow. And now we put our effort into it and we create the bread. Now you, you say, well, wait a minute, not too many minutes ago you said that leaven was a sign of sin. But also remember that in one of Jesus' parables, he said that the, the kingdom of God was like leaven that a woman put into the measures of the grain, right? Because think about it, okay? Have you had matzah or saltine crackers? And then you've had yummy bread, right? Which do you like better? Well, what God does is he takes the raw, just like we take the raw material of grain and create something even better out of it in some ways um, by turning it into bread, he takes us. He takes us in our raw state. He puts his spirit into us, because I believe in this case, 11 is a sign of the spirit enlivening the things. And then that makes something better, okay? And so we'll get to in a little bit um, why there are, Two lobes, but I'm going to save that for a little bit later.
Alrighty. So again, that's the spring feast in Shavuot. And then we get to the fall feast, which is Yom Teruah. You may have heard of it as the Feast of Trumpets. Also Rosh Hashanah is another name for it because that's the beginning of the civil new year. Then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this is what Jesus' ministry was all about, was being that atoning sacrifice. And then finally, at the end of the year, they get to Sukkot, which celebrates that you know, their time in the wilderness wanderings, remembering that God led them, remembering that he cared for them, and they're to be reminded of that. Alrighty. Now, one thing that I just want to intrigue you with is that when we look at these, these really were ways of God foreshadowing what Messiah, what his son was going to do when he got here. Because as we said, Jesus was crucified on Pesach, he was buried at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he rose on the Feast of First Fruits. And then Shavuot, we have the birth of the church. We have the Holy Spirit coming. And all of these things ex happened exactly on the days that would have been in the Jewish calendar. Well, there are some that believe, and again, I just throw this out for you to, to encourage you to look into this. I'm not saying that it's correct, but there are those that believe that Jesus may have his second coming might be similarly projected from the fall feasts, okay? Not picking dates and times, okay? But just, just to tease you with that. Then finally, one last thing about the feasts is there were three times a year that Jewish men were expected to be in Jerusalem for uh, these holidays. And they were at Pesach, Shavuot, and then Sukkot, okay? And when we look at this, we, you find that this goes back to Deuteronomy 16, 16. He says, three times in a year, all of your males shall appear before Yehovah, your God, in the place that he chooses, because Jerusalem doesn't exist when they're down in Egypt, right, when they're at Mount Sinai. And it says, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. God wanted the devout Jews to be in Jerusalem to see his son crucified. He wanted those devout Jews in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And I think as the Jews are regathered from around the world, he's going to have them there for when his son does come back to deliver them and to reign over them as king forever. Amen? All right. So back to Shavuot. Let's now look at the account of Shavuot uh, as laid out in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 19, we read, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession amongst the peoples of all the earth. I'm sorry, you shall be my possession amongst all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now notice, God is making a, a conditional covenant here. He is saying, if you do these things, then you will be priests to me. Okay? God, Yehovah, was never meant to be a tribal God. He was not the God of the Jews, as opposed to Baal, as opposed to Asherah, or whatever. Okay? He's saying, I'm the God of the universe. You're going to carry that message. You're going to be my priest going out to the nation. A priest is someone that bridges the gap between God and man, right? And so he's saying, that's what your purpose is, okay? And so that's part of the reason for the law. Now, this is not unique just to that time because 
when we look at Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 6, we read, and this is Isaiah talking about people that will respond when Messiah comes. He says, and you will be called priests of Yehovah. You will be named ministers of our God. Okay, there's that same concept. Okay, when someone asks you, well, who's the minister over at Gateway Christian Fellowship? You say, well, John Maropoulos is our pastor, but every observant Christian in that congregation is a minister of the gospel. And we go to Gateway so that our pastor can instruct us, to inspire us, to help us to do that job of ministry better. Well, we don't sit back and just like come in on Sunday morning and say, okay, entertain us. Okay, this is about equipping, that we, we come to church to be equipped to go out and do his work. Alrighty, then, I'm sorry. All right, so then let's look again in two more times where we're referred to as priests. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. It says, To Jesus Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to do what? To serve his God and Father. And then finally, in Revelation 5.10, it similarly says, You have made them, referring to the saints, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So what he is saying is this. Is everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you are saved through faith, that not yourself, not works less than you answer most. And that's usually where we end. But verse 10 is important because it talks about in order to do the good works that he beforehand established for us to do. Christianity is not about a get-out-of-hell-free get pass, Right? It's about salvation, sanctification, and service. That we're saved by grace. That we live our lives in an ongoing process of being sanctified, becoming more and more like our Savior. And then we, out of the gratefulness of our heart, serve our God. Okay, and that's what he's saying is we were called to be priests. We were called to serve him, not just to sit on the sidelines. All right, so let's go back now uh, to... Uh, Exodus 19, okay? And it says, All the people answered together and said, All that Yehovah has spoken, we will do. Now this is important and at the same time tragic. One of the you have to realize is this is Exodus 19. We don't get the Ten Commandments till Exodus 20. Now out of faith, I really believe that the Jewish people are saying, you know what? We trust this God. He's delivered us. He's providing us water and, and manna. Whatever he asks us to do, we will do. But as you all know the story, how did that work out? Probably about as good as I work out, if you know what I mean. Um, and then, finally, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because Jehovah descended upon it in the fire. Why is this important? You've got devout Jews coming to Jerusalem for Shavuot, they would have been thinking about the events of Sinai and how God comes down as fire. So now on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, and how does he manifest himself? Not as a dove, right? He manifests himself as fire. They would have made the connection. Okay, so that's what that's all about. So what started at Pesach with the redemption of the people moves forward to the Torah, the giving of the instruction. So you can truly say that what's happening is the giving of the law, the giving of the instruction, really completes the process started there. 
okay? And then what, we're, what they're really calling to mind as they celebrate Passover is their redemption, their deliverance from evil, the provision that God made for them in the wilderness, his protection over them, and his establishing of a relationship. All right, so with that as background, now let's turn and let's take a preview of Acts chapter 2, okay? And we read in Acts chapter 2, it's verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in the one place. So now you understand. See, honestly, God, for years and years, I thought, oh, you know, uh, Luke is simply, Luke knew that the people called this, how, this Pentecost, the day this happened, just like we call Christmas. And so I was like, oh, well, when the, the day that we commemorate this fully came, here's what happened. He's saying, no, 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 no. When Pentecost, when those observant Jews were celebrating this, they were doing this. The final thing is, and John's in the parking lot, and, um, is he would tell you, because I've heard him say, that one of the things your Bible may leave out is it says they were all together in the whole one place. So this is a very special place. And, and again, we get this notion of the upper room and whatnot, but there's some good scholarship. And this is not sort of like, you know, split a church over. But there are a lot of people that say there are good reasons to believe that the, the, the disciples were actually in the temple compound when these events took place. Because that would be one of those things they would say is the one place. Okay? All right, and then continuing, it says, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole place where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, one of the things is there are, there are traditional readings for the holidays, and so one of the readings that you would have had read in the temple that day would have been the description of God as recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1. And Ezekiel, in referring to God, sees him coming as a stormy wind out of the north. And he also says, as that wind is blowing, it brings it a cloud, and in the midst of that cloud is fire. Okay? And so Ezekiel is saying, hey, there, when, one of the ways God comes is as a rushing wind and as fire. And as we already saw in Exodus 19, 18, that's exactly how God comes down on Sinai. He descends as fire. Okay? Amen. Then continuing on in Acts 2, it says, Now, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. Now you know why they were there. Okay? Um, and when this occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So again, they're hearing this. And this is why. It wasn't that Jerusalem was this great metropolis. This isn't like New York City, okay? Jerusalem wasn't on a trade route. It wasn't a port. There's no reason in the world to go to Jerusalem from, you know, if you're a non-believing, you know, Middle Easterner, right? Um, at that time, except that you were instructed by God in Deuteronomy to be there. And that's why you, they were speaking in these nights. Continuing, it says, Parthenons and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of, Is of Libya, around Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. 
well, okay, Christians uh, and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So, we're back to the two loaves. Why two loaves? Because what we have is one loaf representing the Jewish people, one loaf representing those that are come, going to come to faith in God. Okay, I will also tell you one of the one of the passages that's read typically at, at Pesach in in synagogues around the world is to, you know in celebration of it is the Book of Ruth. Well, what is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabitess. Did you know there's specifically a law in the Torah that says if you marry a Moabitess, your children are cut off from leadership in Israel for for ten generations? But what does Ruth say? She says, where you go, I go, okay? And your people will be my people. But most importantly, your God will be my God. And according to Leviticus 19.33, what, what God taught the people is he said, when somebody comes and it becomes a follower of Yehovah, he says, you know how you're supposed to treat them? You're not supposed to treat them like a former pagan. He says, you treat them like the native born. So in that moment in time, you had, you had Ruth go from being a Moabitess to being an Israelite woman, okay? And that's what Paul talks about, how we're grafted in. We're the wild olive branches. Israel is the native olive tree. And we're grafted in, so we have this unity. And that's what he's showing with the two loaves. His approach to Jew and Gentile is going to be the same. His son died for both. His spirit will enliven both, and that's part of the, the, the meaning behind those loaves. Alrighty. And then finally, he, to just complete this section, he says, but others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give, you, and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. Now, why is that important? Well, number one, he's saying, look, guys, we didn't roll out of bed and like look immediately for the hair of the dog that bit us. He's saying, it's only three hours. We couldn't get drunk drinking, right? But the other thing he is saying is this. He's reminding them that the third hour of the day would have been the, day, would have been the time of the day that the wave offering of the bread was given. So the Holy Spirit shows up not only on the right day, but right on time, okay? That doesn't blow your theological mind and I'm, I'm tapped out. Alrighty. And then let's continue on. He says, Now, when they heard this, the observant Jews, they were pierced to the heart. Zechariah said that they'd be pierced to the heart when, when they came to understand what had happened. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what can we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. Now, there is no detail in the Bible that's ever given just for no reason. We're going to see why 3,000 is an important number in just a minute. But notice, just like God at Sinai said, if you do these things, then you will be my people. 
hear Peter saying, you want this gift of the Holy Spirit, you want God indwelling you, enriching your lives, then you need to repent, you need to be baptized. Okay, That doesn't mean you're not saved if you're not baptized, we're not going there, but it's just to say, he, he's saying, these are the steps in the Christian life. Okay, All right, next. So as we saw, just as Pesach was fulfilled in Shavuot, the crucifixion of Jesus, our, our Passover lamb, that brought us redemption, now that work is completed by having him indwell us, the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Okay, so next, let's, let's compare and contrast. Now that we've touched on the two separately, let's compare them sort of head to head. And the first thing is location, okay? Um, they both take place on a mountain, right? God comes down on Mount Sinai, which also in your Bible is sometimes referred as Mount Hebron. And Jerusalem is also referred as Mount Zion. It's built on a ridge system, okay? Here in Alaska, we think of mountains being, you know, Denali or Pioneer Peak, okay? Over there, what we would call a grassy knoll counts as a, as a mountain, okay? So Jerusalem is called Mount Zion as well. The next thing is I want to touch on this concept of giving gifts, that God gave the gift of the Torah, okay? If you don't really study the Old Testament, overall, what do we think about the law? It's not necessary anymore, it's horrible, it, it's enslaved the people, yada, yada, yada. And here's the thing to always remember. When Jesus Christ came into conflict about the law, he never came in conflict about anything in the Torah. He came into conflict with the, 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 the Pharisees over the man-made rules that were meant to help flesh out the Torah. Right? So when he says, he's criticized, hey, your apostles don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay? I've got a million dollar opportunity for you. I'm offering a million dollars to anyone that can find me in the Old Testament where God instructs hand washing before eating. Now, he, he, he calls them to be hygienic, and so the, the rabbis say, ah, well, part of this is going to be hand washing. I'm not against hand washing. Okay? But it's just to say, when he's in conflict, it's not over what God gave Moses in, in, in the Torah, but it's in the rules that God made. I grew up Catholic, love the Catholic Church, love Catholic people, I'm not picking on anyone. I didn't eat meat on Friday growing up. Well, they, they've since you know, dropped that whole thing, but you know, that's an example of man-made rules. Okay, now, so that was the gift that God gave to the, to the Jewish people in terms of the Torah. Last thing I want to say is this, and I think this is very important. What, are the, what's, what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 4, 6. Then he says, and the second is like it, and Pastor John can show you all the cool stuff in the Greek, but it, what it's really saying is the second one is the same, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how can that be the same as loving God? Because part of loving God is to keep his commandments, and a lot of the commandments he has has to do with loving your neighbor, okay? So why is the Torah a gift? Well, if you want communion with God, if I want to be in relationship with God, I don't know how to do that. I mean, if I ask you, what, how do you make God happy? Okay, and then how do you know it? Okay, the people of the earth didn't have the law. They didn't know how to be in relationship. They didn't know what things to do that would bring a smile to God's face. They didn't know the things they would do that would hurt their relationship with God. So the Torah is a gift because now we know what to do. Okay, 
So just share it with you. Now, what about the Holy Spirit as a gift? Well, here I'm going to stick with the old. I'm going to stick with the Jewish custom for one more minute longer, and that's to say the the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, right? And what's very interesting is when you when you got a, a bride for your son, there was a bride price to pay, which is the mahar. And this was a high price. It was paid by the groom's father. It was compulsory. It was to reimburse the bride's family for you know, raising the daughter and the loss of assistance to the family. But it also did two more things. It established a blood covenant between that woman and her new family, and it established the authority of the husband over the wife. Okay, And so what was our mahor? Our mahor, or mahar, was the crucifixion of Jesus. Because it paid the price for our sins. And that was a very high price, okay? It establishes our covenant relationship with God, and it establishes Jesus Christ as Lord over our lives. He's not only our Savior, He's our Lord. And again, I, what I believe is this, is I believe the Holy Spirit, that God sort of molded some of these customs, some of these traditions, so that people would see them and say, ah, so it's not that these things are holy, it's not that they're, you know, you know, um, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I think they're, they're, they're managed by the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's the, that's the bride price. But there's a second gift that's given, which is the matan, okay? And the matan is a voluntary gift, and it's a gift from the husband to the bride. Because see, when, in Jewish wedding traditions, I encourage you to study this, it'll blow your mind, it's wonderful. The bride and the groom were considered married from the time the bride accepted the offer of the man, okay? Now, much like when you read about Mary and Joseph, it says they were betrothed, but they had not yet come together. Because what happens is this, is the, 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 the people lived in compounds, in family compounds. And so if I was going to take on a bride, I'd go and we'd negotiate the kataba. Your Bible is your kataba, by the way. And then I would go back to my father's house and I would remodel a section in there for me and my bride. And so when Jesus says, no one knows when I'm coming back except the father, the groom didn't know when he was going to come back for his bride until his, his dad would go in and go, okay, yep, looks like you got everything in shape. You can bring a woman in here and start a family now. You're good to go. Okay? And so we see that. And so this whole idea of him giving the matan now is an expression. It's a voluntary expression of his love for this woman. It's a gift the, 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 the groom gives to the wife. And it's an expression of his love, and it's meant to support the bride while waiting for him to come. So Jesus says, it's far better for you that I go away so that the Spirit will come. Because it's the Spirit that's going to sustain you on this earth until I come back to rule and reign. Okay, so again, we see this beautiful thing. The Mahar is, is, the, is, is the father giving Jesus to die for our sins. The Matan is the son giving his bride his Holy Spirit. Okay, all righty. Uh, next, you know, what happened on the first Pentecost? Well, we have the nation established. We have Judaism established. What happens on Pentecost? Well, we have the establishment of the church, the assembly. Okay. Um, next, one of the things that happened, we said at Sinai, was the writing of the law, and in that, you know, it was written down actually on a scroll. Okay, too many of us have seen the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments, 
And what we don't realize is, is God gives Moses the law. He writes it down. And as a matter of fact, when God calls him back up the mountain, Aaron had a written copy of the law, and he was supposed to use that to lead the people. Instead, he decided to be a goldsmith. Okay, and that led to lots of problems. And so we have the writing of the law. Well, what about what was written down on Pentecost? Well, I think that the Pentecost is the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33. Because what does God say there? He says that I'm going to write the law on your heart. And it's the Holy Spirit indwelling us that writes the law, as it were, on our heart. In both cases, both Shabbat and Pentecost, God is affirming his chosen people, the Jewish people to be his priests to the nations, uh, the, the members of the church to then be the priests to uh, the world in which they live. And then finally, we get to what was the response to God on those days. And in Shavuot, there were those that rejected it, right? He goes back up, he goes, Moses goes back up, he's gone for 40 days. They say, wow, I don't think this cat's coming back. Make us a golden calf and let us worship it. Okay, so they rejected the law, some, and 3,000 people died. Exodus 32, 28. Well, what happens on Shavuot? I mean, on Pentecost. Well, some people accept it. They didn't, it doesn't, Peter doesn't say every devout Jew came to believe that day. He says, but about 3,000 believed. Okay, this is back to, I don't believe there's any detail given in the Bible that is not there for a very exact purpose. God is saying, I'm restoring as it were, to my kingdom to replace the ones that were lost back at Sinai. Okay. Then, to, the last thing I want to talk about again is to flesh out just a little bit more of this concept of fire. And the first time we see God using fire is, is, is a sad situation because it has to do with the Garden of Eden, right? That, that Adam sins, and then God comes to confront him, and here he comes to see him. And he says, they, meaning Adam and Eve, heard the sound of Yehovah, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Notice, God doesn't hide himself from us. We hide ourselves from God. Okay? It says, so God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God says, you know what? When you sin, sin and death enter the world. You're not going to have access to the tree of life to live forever. So fire first becomes a symbol of separation. But praise God, it changes at that point. The next time we see it in relationship to the actions of God is at Mount Sinai. And here, as we said, Yehovah comes down as fire and gives the gift of the law. So now, by fire, they recognize that this distant God now is on the earth, okay? But it goes further. So we have him bringing the message there. Now, the next time is in Exodus 40, okay? Where again, what we read is about the, the, the temple, I'm sorry, the tabernacle being built and then God coming to indwell it. Because it wasn't enough. He didn't want to be this distant God on this mountain, that if you got too close to the mountain, if you touched the mountain, you would die. He didn't want to be a distant God off in eternity, and we're here on earth. So he comes down to earth, but still he's separated. He's on the mountain. And God says, you know what? That's not close enough. I want to be amongst my people. You're all going to build a tabernacle, and I'm going to dwell in it. And that's what we see in Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of Yehovah filled the tabernacle. 
Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of Yehovah filled the temple. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yehovah was on the tabernacle by night, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all of the house of Israel. So again, observant Jews would know when, we, when fire shows up, that's our God showing up. When he's in the midst of the camp, because the tabernacle was in the camp and they, and they camped round about it, God is showing, I don't want to be on the mountain, I want to be amongst my people. But we still have some element of separation there, and that's when we get finally to the fire of fellowship. Okay, And that's what we see here in Acts. And it says, and he appeared to them as tongues of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So God has moved from the mountain to the Mishkan, which is Hebrew for tabernacle, to man. He's finally back in fellowship with us, intimate relationship with us, the way he wanted it to be back in, in the garden. Okay, So he's moving closer and closer and closer with each subsequent step. So you often see an illustration like this, where we sort of see that on, you know, when the world began and things were perfect in the garden, that man walked in, in, in communion with God. But then sin comes and we get this separation. Now there's this chasm between us and God. Well, as Christians, you're familiar with illustrations like this one, where you, we see the cross bridging that chasm. Okay? And the cross and what Jesus did gives us the opportunity to approach our God. But today, in closing, I just want to remind you that before the crucifixion, there was a necessity of having the Torah, that God reached out to man. And really, when you think about it, nothing has changed. Because let me ask you this. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say, wow, man is hungry for God and is looking for him and God's hiding? Or does it say, no. When you were yet in your sin, Jesus died for your sin. And then it was the Holy Spirit that seeks us out and draws us to him. Okay? And so we see in Shavuot, we see in Pentecost, God working this out. So in conclusion then, Shavuot and Pentecost, the gift at, at, at Pentecost was the giving of the instruction, giving of the Torah, the explanation of how to be in relationship with God. But at Pentecost now, in Acts chapter 2, we now have the indwelling. We're getting the gift. We're getting that matan from our Lord and Savior in order to give us the power that we need to move forward and to live the Christian life here, to be the priests that we were called to be, to bring his good news to the world and, all, and the people that we encounter, and in that way give glory to our God.